Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I am recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been the custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law, regulation and more broadly the state have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite that, 60,000 years of wisdom continues and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today I speak with former Senator Scott Ludlam. Scott served as the Senator for Western Australia from 2008 until 2017, advocating on environmental justice, human rights, and also, which we won't be able to talk to today, uh, national security laws and the resulting surveillance that we as citizens experience. Today's topic is big enough, state capture. The World Bank defines state capture as the exercise of power by private actors through control over resources, threats of violence or other forms of influence to shape policies or implementation in the service of their narrow interest. State capture is a term I hadn't heard of until I read Scott's wonderful book, Full Circle. And just last week, Scott Ludlam, as part of the Australia Democracy Network, released a report on state capture. Honestly, it's pretty brutal, but there is hope. It's brutal because it shows how much of our political system has been flipped to meet the needs of private interests rather than our interests, and that elections alone won't fix the problem. But there's hope because the report reveals that there are immediate and practical reforms that we can push our politicians to address right now. There's been a theme emerging across interviews recently uh, with, uh, I've had with George Williams, Andrew Wilkie, and now Scott Ludlam. It's that our democracy is on a slippery slope, but there's points where we can exit this slide. We just need to be clear and deliberate about it. So please subscribe, rate the podcast. We're available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, or anywhere else you can find your reputable regulation podcasts. Well, um, lovely to have you, former Senator Scott Ludlam, um, on the podcast. As you know, the the first question we ask everyone on this podcast is, uh, why does regulation matter to you and why does it matter to your community? Well, it matters to me because without it, you've got law of the jungle. Uh, Without some form of regulation, preferably democratically um, imposed or drawn up, it really is the law of the jungle. It just means that powerful institutions have the run of the table. So it's a, it's an essential constraint on power. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that's a really important um, distinction to be making there that um, a lot of regulation sometimes isn't democratically created. It's just out of the executive. I, when you say that, I actually think a bit of um, the Migration Act and so much of that's made within the migration regulations like and so there's a lot of power granted there that you know isn't democratically um governed 
I don't know if you there is <clears throat> the one that comes to mind for me is one of the most important things there is is the power to send the ADF into war is entirely a creature of the executive in fact it's it's restricted to the prime minister's office and so <clears throat> what what happens when though I, I feel like you've got these unregulated spheres and though and the war power is one of them is that it undermines the legitimacy uh, of some of the decisions that are made and the institution itself yeah and i think we're going to get into that a bit more throughout this um this episode about um legitimacy and the legitimacy of some of these decisions that are being made by government um and, and as i indicated um at the beginning you you were a senator from uh 2008 and until 2017 i believe um you would have been in the thrust of um, political uh, rule making or um, probably rule breaking um, we, we hear a lot of at the moment too um, what did that tell you about your time in parliament what did that tell you about the state of Australia's democracy well I took two takeaways I suppose one is that it's it's an incredibly important and all right we'll talk about legitimacy a little bit further down the track but there's a lot of of um, of dismay there's a lot of sometimes I think it's incorrectly labeled as apathy of people just turning their backs on it because it's such a mess. It's such an undignified mess at the moment. Uh, my, in my time in there, I realized just how important it is, like just how much sway that building has uh, on, on the minutiae of people's lives, on big picture stuff and on very small things. And the second takeaway, I suppose, which has become a real preoccupation since then, is how much the game is cooked, uh, how asymmetrical the power dynamics that govern that place are yeah yeah um cooked is a good good verb for it and and i think you've you've sort of unpacked a lot of that in in a book that you've written since finishing up in parliament um uh, that was full circle but also um i'll say last week at the time of because uh, it will be last week when we release this episode you released a report confronting what you called state capture um, now, I've got a background in regulation and so I, we talk a lot about regulatory capture, but um, what is state capture um, and what does it mean for our community? Well, so the report was released. It's not it's not just my show. The report was released under the banner of the Australian Democracy Network. If you have a look in the inside cover, you'll see a huge number of people way smarter than me who helped us make that what it was. If you like, I mean, if your jumping off point is regulatory capture, which is when an agency is kind of swayed from its founding purpose by the people it's meant to be regulating. Uh, state capture is, is a much larger instance of that. You can imagine regulatory capture as, as a subset of this larger thing. Instead of talking about the EPA or uh, you know one single agency tasked with something important, you're looking at the entire engine of state, but also its, its surrounding context. Mm -hmm. So what's conditioning the media environment? What are the people who are voting representatives in? What are they hearing? What information are they being exposed to or denied? So um, in the report, we talk about regulatory capture in the context of this thing called institutional repurposing, which you've probably come across in the literature. But it's, again, this phenomenon of you take an agency with some kind of public purpose, it, you know, legislated generally um, to protect us from harm or regulate uh, the workplace or regulate the um you know the issuing of chemicals into the environment it's set up there with a purpose often a noble or an important one 
and it's the, it's gradually unmoored and it can be quite a slow process it doesn't happen all all at once what state capture talks about is when you've expanded that kind of remit to to divert the public purpose of institutions all the way up to the parliament potentially the courts intelligence agencies police um all the you know anything that's connected any kind of armature of of this of state power is is grabbed and turned towards private profit or private advantage or private purpose and it's a it's an extremely dangerous phenomenon in this report we argue that australia is indeed in the grip of a form of state capture yeah absolutely and you you i mean there's we'll probably touch on on a few of the industries there that that are um that are prominent in that um uh but you know, certainly to me, um, mining and um, I actually work in mental health, and so I've I've seen a lot of evidence of that in, in the mental health space as well. But in your report, you highlight six channels for state capture that target different tiers of of governance um, and different uh, and different parts of civil society. Um, so can we draw out a couple? Um, so a couple of those channels. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think that one of the ones that we can't avoid, um, if, if we can start with, is uh, financial interventions in politics. So you talk a bit about that. What What is that about? We talk quite a bit about it. And maybe the, the message might seem a bit contradictory, because on the one hand, it's the foundation of all the other forms of influence. It's extremely powerful and well-resourced industries that are splashing money around um, in order to influence decisions, decision makers um, in in industry favorable directions. So it is it's the foundation on which the rest of these kind of pillars are built. On the other hand, when you narrow your focus just to political donations, which obviously really matter because our political class is, is awash with money, you suddenly realize how small these amounts are, like how cheaply some of these people are bought um, or how some sectors kind of bypass that altogether. One of our case studies is the arms industry who, as far as we can tell, rarely crack the top 20 in terms of donations. But they've got a this feverish lock over policy and tilt it in all sorts of, of directions, mm. as far as we can tell, without flooding political parties with cash. So on the one hand, it's important, it matters, and we go into a fair bit of detail in the study. On the other hand, it's not the only game in town. There's other channels of influence which we go into as well. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, and that's an important term there that you that you may, uh, that you know as far as we can tell as well. And I know some of the recommendations you have in the report are uh, mm-hmm. make sure that we can tell that better. Um, we, we've sp- spoken a little bit about institutional repurposing already, and so maybe if you're able to unpack one of the other channels. So you said that you know um, we can get not not distracted, but um, focus just on financial interventions as being an example. But what what's something that might be um, less obvious to the community? What's perhaps a bit less obvious is how much of it's built on relationships. So money matters. Um, Upwards of 40% of the money that flows into political parties is dark money. Um, The Centre for Public Integrity does this beautiful work every year, ACF, um, and a handful of others who analyse just how much of the money that's flowing through politics. We just don't know where it comes from because it's the reporting obligations are so loose. Mm. But um, one of the things that we go into in a fair bit of detail is just how much of it's built on relationships. So two of the channels, one of them being lobbying. So kind of the formal lobbying, either at a CEO level through industry associations like the Minerals Council 
or through this very specialized ecosystem of lobbyists and communications consultancies. So you've got these three channels of lobbying um, that, that when industry really wants something real bad, they'll be using all three at the same time. These people all have each other's mobile phones. So some of the lobbying is done at golf. Some of it is done in these um, so-called policy forums that both the major parties maintain, which are kind of key sites of financial exchange because it costs you $110,000 to get through the door at the platinum level. But they're also where very close quarters lobbying is done. They're where relationships are built and where policy arguments are had. There's records and meetings. There's no membership, but that's where a lot of the, this work gets done in those, um, in those policy forums or those so-called business forums. The second thing, which might be a little bit hidden and it takes a bit of it takes a little bit of work to get a sense of just how how prevalent this is is what we call revolving doors which is the fact that there's not a separate political class a separate media class and a separate kind of industry or business class these people are all in a frenzy swapping jobs so it's this very circular career paths that you go into industry that's enough to get you employed as a senior staffer in the prime minister's office or the industry minister's office. The minister in their post-political career is going to go and run the industry association for the Queensland resources sector. Yes. Uh, you, you see huge numbers of people coming out of the Murdoch press, like really senior journalists and communications professionals washing into the communications off, um, uh, staff positions in ministerial offices, senior public servants, senior military defence officials, who then go directly from very senior levels of the ADF into lobbying for some of the world's largest arms corporations. And this revolving door, I think, is, is actually the glue that makes it all stick together. Money's the lubricant. It's the relationships that are the glue. These people all know each other, and they are in this, this kind of ceaseless exchange between, um, between different offices. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and, and your report definitely unpacks that that... Uh... Um, revolving door is it's very much a bipartisan kind of commitment um, um, between both parties. Um, all of these, all of these things are. And so that's one of the signatures of state capture. That's what separates this, I guess, from what we would ordinarily imagine as just influence, which is as old as capitalism. It's probably as old as, as anybody has been able to leverage, leverage economic power into political power. So these are pretty ancient dynamics. The state capture one of the signatures of that is that it's not just capture of the government it's that you need to you need to control a majority of the parliament so it automatically needs to involve major opposition parties as well now it makes the role of the greens and the independents all the more important because we do still have people in our legislatures state and federal who aren't taking the money and who aren't part of this culture um, of state capture but for the, for the, as far as the industries are concerned, one of the key objectives and signatures of state capture is that all that infrastructure is still there no matter who wins government. Yeah. That's yeah. what's a bit frightening about it. Post-election doesn't matter whether it's the red team or the blue team in the prime minister's office, all that infrastructure is still going to be there. Mm. The incentives won't have shifted. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of when you talk about that, it reminds me, a down the line kind of consequence of that is they, they talk a bit about the Overton window, you know, the idea that you can only discuss, you know, there's a certain level of, I don't know if you can hear my cat sort of um, chiming in in the background. So I apologize. Um, for right. that to you. Um, uh, it, it, a, a certain window of acceptable ideas that can be discussed yes. publicly. And, and I imagine state capture makes that window quite small. 
What helps make it small is is one of the other channels that we talk about a fair bit in the report, which is the the media influence campaign, so the public influence campaigns. So within um, the political context, within ministerial offices and within political parties, the Overton window now, all you can see through it is don't be an idiot, don't upset powerful industry groups or your political career is going to be short and ugly. We all know what happened to Kevin Rudd. We know what happened to Julia Gillard. Those were, were very senior political figures who pissed off very powerful industries and industry associations and paid the price. And so within the political class, the Overton window, what you can see through it is just don't piss these people off, mm. either either in your election campaign or once you're in government, just let them, let them have the run of it, which is a, a catastrophe. That's not yeah. democracy anymore. That's something different. That's state capture. Yeah, and we... I don't think we we make enough or are as shocked as we should be about, um, you know, of what happened to um, Kevin Rudd in terms of, not in terms of a, a personal connection to him, but what that meant for us democratically, that that um, one of the most popular sitting prime ministers was able to be rolled pretty quickly after proposing a mining tax. And I know there were more, there were other features involved, but that was a, a major driver. Is my well, there were. The Minerals Council spent $22 million in about six weeks. And that's not all they were doing. They were also pouring a whole heap of acid into factional divisions within the Labor Party, um, which were exploited by ambitious people inside Labor. But you've got to look at the at the external conditions that they were facing, where he had proposed a big tax on a very powerful industry sector and was foreshadowing more action in terms of climate change. And uh, you turn around and he's gone. Yeah, and and, and the, oh, sorry. What they did to Gillard, in in my opinion, was worse. You know, that was a serious full court press. Mm. I don't think anybody's even really estimated how much that campaign cost because it went for a lot longer. But the you know the mining industry installed Tony Abbott into the prime minister's office, and I don't I don't think either the Labor Party or our political culture more broadly has really quite come to grip with that. No, no, not at all. All right. So a, a question that arises for me um, is about how the theory works around, I guess I was thinking about in terms of time and marginalisation. And by that, I mean that some groups have historically always been disenfranchised and, and marginalised um, from the establishment of the state. So a notable, but not certainly not the only example would be First Nations people and what we now call Australia. So the, the actual creation of the state was the, um, or what we call a democracy, is, was part of the, the problem. So this is an open question about how or if you think it applies in these circumstances, the, the theory of a captured state. I think it does. Um, in the widest context, it absolutely does. It entrenches, though, it entrenches those forms of disadvantage even further. Mm. Um, because I think, I feel like, one example you could look at is the drafting of land rights legislation and then on top of that, the native title framework mm. where you had, again, the resources sector, sorry to pick on them so much, but they absolutely deserve it, just going hell for leather to try and weaken any land rights protection. Firstly, to try and ensure that there was no national land rights framework. They managed to, to just corral it into the Northern Territory and then to punch as many holes as they could in the native title framework, such that it is now this tool of absolute division and despair. Every now and again, somebody manages to pull a win out of it, but 
it's it's simply not fit for purpose and so what they what you can see there is the the operation of a playing field that is anything but level in the crafting of regulation and so people who are who are historically disenfranchised um in terms of race and the operation of the colony that that disenfranchisement gets entrenched over time mm. and i think there's a the other dimension of it of it i guess is simply the existence of class that the people who who form this elite tier of society the ones that are in this revolving door this circular career pathways through these different institutions which ideally you would want to be formally quite separate they all come from the same schools they all come from the same postcodes they're largely white they're largely male they're largely coming from wealthy family backgrounds and there's straight line continuity from the founding of the colony to to what we see today so yeah the disenfranchisement mm. um, over time we visualize state capture as a slope is a as a tilted dynamic that is leading from corruption through state capture and out the other side to oligarchy Mm -hmm. And that's that's the most important thing. It's not a static phenomenon at all. It's self, it's self entrenching and self reinforcing. Yeah, I mean, it sounds cancerous in a way, right? Um, in that it sort of um, seems to self replicate to, to some degree. I think now we're talking about neoliberalism as a, you know the the viral effect mm -hmm. of of using money as a solvent for every other form of social relationship mm -hmm. and um, every other form of solidarity then yes it does it does have its i read i read a paper that i think the gentleman turned into a book a couple of years ago which affected me quite a bit which was called the cancer stage of capitalism which is just how the financialization of the economy eventually overruns and eats the host mm. until it collapses yeah. um in state capture you can see some of these dynamics but you can also see tools for winding it back and for attacking it mm. Yeah, and we'll get to those. It's just, I, it just reflects. I've got my own lived experience of mental health issues, and I work from that perspective a lot of the time that I do work. And um, we use the term, and you might have come across this in your, in your work, but we use the term um, consumer, you know, and, and that's a, you know, yeah. um, it's a, it's a, I feel really um, conflicted about the term because the, the rationale behind the term is, um, uh, you should have consumer rights and the historically folk who um, have um, mental health issues. And I'll admit I haven't had involuntary treatment, but folks who have haven't had rights. And so the term consumer is about, you know, saying that they should have equal rights on that basis. But kind of talking to what you, you're saying there, it's like almost a financialization of the, those relationships and that, that you could only possibly have moral significance if you yeah if you were a consumer rather than a citizen or a person you know yeah and then those those you know your rights as a consumer uh scale according to how much is is on your credit card yeah so they're not like human rights or civil and political rights of human beings which are held to be equal as a birthright of your existence as a human being i loathe the concept of referring to people as consumers mm. Every now and again, I catch myself doing it. I reckon we should very profoundly not treat living, warm, breathing human beings as though they're just some kind of consumption pipeline for products or services. Yeah, well, I'm pretty hungry at the moment, so I'm going to be a pipeline for some food later. But <laughs> um, um, uh, but I'll, I'll call myself something more delicate, like a living, breathing human being. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the election issues 
being used to differentiate um, uh, the two two major parties is um, well, and and certainly the the Greens, your your former comrades as well. The uh, is um, integrity in general and a federal ICAC specifically. Um, where does this sit? You know, you talked a bit about the slope, but then also some of the tools to, to change um, or get us off that slope. Um, where does this sit on that journey towards, I guess, us maybe recapturing the state or decapturing the state? Um, do we need to go further than an ICAC? Well, we do because ICAC is a, a national anti-corruption commission in any form isn't going to be much help if it's not enforcing a really strong integrity framework. So what is the legal framework that the ICAC is in charge of enforcing at a federal level? It isn't there, so or it's barely there. And so one of the things that we propose in the report is to look at the framework for fair democracy that the Australian Democracy Network have pioneered, which just brings together the best donations reform for a country like Australia, the best lobbyist reforms like how to regulate lobbying how to regulate election campaign spending what to do about the revolving door and it just brings all these things together into one place and so uh what we propose is legislate for that start electing people who a aren't part of the money go round, and b will commit to to legislating the framework for a fair democracy that gives the national icac something to really dig into it, it just it raises the benchmark for everybody and it levels it levels out the playing field we're pretty careful to, to acknowledge that that's not the whole picture there's uh a whole domain of stuff which we cover in the report which even a stronger icac won't be able to touch because it's not what's happening with state capture isn't really corruption it's something much more systematic and very little of it you would really define as being corrupt um <clears throat> or or unlawful legalized, legalized or sanctioned under our current system well yeah exactly and it becomes very systematic um but like a newspaper running an attack piece day after day after day on politicians it doesn't like that's not really corruption it's it's incredibly dangerous and un, unhelpful but you wouldn't it's not something that an icac is going to be interested in right so there's an there's a much larger field of action which we point to in the report around, we have to raise the cost and the consequences for the entities and the people doing the capturing. And that looks like every different kind of civil society action that you can imagine from investor resolutions at Woodside to um, uh, to all the kind of actions that people do to revoke the social license of these industries to operate, to UN treaties that ban nuclear weapons and cut off the customer pipeline for the nuclear weapons industry. So the legislative framework, the regulatory piece that you're interested in is key. We've addressed it, but you've got to locate it within that wider field. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I know I'm just a hammer and I only see nails and there are other parts <laughs> to this, um, to building this new, new house that we call democracy. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. You talk a bit there about the, the social license to operate. Um, someone I interviewed uh, last year, um, Professor Fiona Haynes, she spoke a lot about, and, and a lot of the listeners might not know what a social license to operate is, but it's essentially, you know, you can get a, a legal license to operate. So, you know, formally that you're legally allowed to engage in the particular conduct, conduct like a mining company, you've got the relevant mining approvals. Um, but um, sometimes you might not have the social license to operate, 
being um, the the local community don't see the the moral value or the um, or you don't have the license from them or legitimacy from them to operate in that space and one of the most prominent examples I can think of, and my father um, used to to live in northern New South Wales um, around around Nimbin area, the Nimbin area, and um, very everywhere you could see frack off, you know, um, right. um, the you know the the yellow triangle. Off the gate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, at the gate, yep. exactly. I think that's probably the most prominent example of. Um, people withdrawing the social license to operate in an area and it, it's it kind of it, if i can extend that it, it makes me ask a question there and, and maybe this is in in the report maybe this is in some of those other um principles you spoke about but when i when i read the report i saw all of the things that we needed to clear you know clear the terrain you know so that people could properly um, participate i had a question though about I, to to my mind, it, it, people have been um, demotivated and lost their agency um, in the political process for a long time. What do we need to do to to build a civic culture so that people are participating more routinely in the decisions that are that affect them? Um, or do you think that that will naturally result once we clear that um, clear that space? It's real chicken and egg because the clearing depends on people not giving up. And so I don't want anybody's takeaway from the state capture work to be, well, if the state's cap, I'm not going to bother voting because, of course, that's exactly what they want. They want people disengaged and um, and not interested. So I think um, part of what we need to do and part of what we're trying to do here with this report is to remind ourselves and each other that um, there's we're not in an oligarchy. Mm. We do have tools. We do have agency. We can get people elected into that building who aren't part of state capture. Mm. And so let's let's expand the number of people who are in there um, mm. who aren't part of this system um, and let's help them get elected. And let's also acknowledge that the people turning away is entirely legitimate. Is entirely legitimate. Look how vicious and venal the last two weeks in parliament were. Mm. I just couldn't, you can't blame people. Mm. But just also to encourage ourselves that there's plenty of different ways to mm. to push back. Social license for me is um, can you can you can your industry put up a billboard without someone throwing paint at it? Mm. You know, like the tobacco industry doesn't get to donate to major political parties anymore. It's not allowed to advertise. Its packaging all looks like death. It lost its social license, and it's on the way out. Mm. Um, nuclear weapons just got banned under international law by a majority of the world's governments. The social license of nuclear weapons to exist in national armaments is on the way out. It's a process. So when an election rolls around, please vote and and pay attention to who's on your ballot paper. But we can't fool ourselves to think that that's what's going to solve the problem by itself because it, it simply won't. Yeah, absolutely. And that's certainly not my um, my picture that, uh, that I was trying to uh, paint of the report either. I, no, I, I, um, I didn't I get was, that. <laughs> yeah, I was reading a, a book though uh, recently that ironically I've forgotten the name of, but it spoke about that we need to put in reforms to deal with the the rights and interests of future generations and 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 that we need to build in more mechanisms for participatory politics. And so I think that what excites me about um, this report is it's sort of the way that we can achieve what's in this report is also 
um, being more participatory. But once we clear that space, I think that there's a an opportunity for for people to be far more involved in the the local and national politics that affects their lives, and and we yeah. will be much better for that. I think so, and I think naming it has certainly helped me. Like hanging um, the concept of this vague disaffection of the money and the the actual corruption and the revolving doors stuff and the hideous media culture that we've inherited, like finding a concept that made all those things kind of make sense to me, I have found it really valuable. You can't, you can't fight what you can't see. Mm. And this thing deliberately obscures its form. So we've actually tried to pin down the different working parts of it so that we can see how it operates. That gives us more power to disrupt it. Absolutely. And I'm not, not a huge fan of um, psychiatric classifications, but it, when you diagnose something, you can, um, you know, create a language for that thing. And then everyone can talk yeah. about that particular thing. And so I, I also had not heard the term before I read your book, but it's, it's been a bit of an organizing framework for my thoughts. So uh, I think we, we've covered a lot of terrain here, but, you know, I think I spoke offline that um, I'm, I can get a little bit policy wonky at times. So I was, I, I was wondering, could you paint us a picture about, how will our country look better with the reforms that are in the report? So if we, if you know, we somehow achieved or uh, achieved all of the steps that were in the report, how would uh, how would the country look better? But alternatively, because I do think that you know when we come to points like elections, we're at a fork in the road. How will things look differently in ten years if we fail and it gets worse? A great question. All right. Let's handle that maybe in the reverse order. So if we fail and we continue on down this slope in the direction that it's going, one of the <clears throat> most dangerous things that occurs is that our economy stays stuck uh, and trapped in a, as a fossil fuel economy, dependent on exports of fossil fuels that other countries increasingly aren't going to want, exporting arms uh, into an increasingly dangerous and unstable world, um, and an insecure country surrounded by barbed wire, treating immigrants like trash and, you know, a frightened country in a frightening century is how this looks. If we are able to turn it around and disrupt the thing that has captured our politics in this way, you get the opposite of that. You get an open internationalist country with people in our parliament who look like the country that they propose to represent, a much more diverse representative structure that's making decisions on the basis of what people actually need in a democracy rather than the corporate interest. And I think what it looks like is that we're, <clears throat> we're in a much better, <clears throat> we'd be in a much better position if we're successful to deal with the challenges that climate change is gonna keep throwing at us. And it means not buying tanks, it means buying water bombers. It means national resilience strategies, not gas pipelines. Um, and you can see every single day, <clears throat> in very fine-grained ways that what state capture means is that you're getting shockingly bad decisions misallocation of resources um, because it's not democratic hands on the wheel it's somebody else yeah absolutely and when you were talking and something that i thought and i didn't circle back to but um just as a really i don't know you might disagree with this practical practical example um uh, and it is probably from one of your political opponents. But, um, you know, if that mining tax did get through um, and we had a massive, and, and there's a question of whether we should be, you know, mining in the first place, but if that mining tax did get through, I can only imagine 
how much better our aged care system would be prepared for something like coronavirus right now and how many more people would be alive, not just from coronavirus, but from better care, the, your loved ones. The things you care about could have been a lot better um, if they're not doing quite well now, quite so well now, had we had that mining tax. Yeah. So the, the regime is fundamentally parasitic. It doesn't want to pay tax. It doesn't want to pay for the resources it rips out of the ground. It doesn't really want to pay its workforce. Um, what it wants to do is rip the stuff out and sell it for as much as it can and, and flatten its cost base as much as possible. And so in the absence of regulation, that's what you get. We're back in the robber baron age mm. where we're somewhere very dark. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's got that on their vision statement for BHP or Rio. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it's the way the incentives are all structured. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, you've um, you've you've taken us through to hell and back, in that you've told us everything wrong in in terms of state capture, how endemic it is within within Australia, where it could where it could get worse. But then you've you've um, you've given us redemption redemption or a redemptive story of of where we can go, what things would look like if it was going to be different. Um, but we all have a personal responsibility to address this. This isn't a problem out there. This is something for which we all need to take a personal responsibility or a personal stake in our own democracy. So what's one thing that you want people to do after hearing you today? Is um, understand that state capture can be legible. Like it is something understandable. As soon as we can understand it and read it, we can do something about it. So the one thing I hope people take away is the thing that I took away from working on the report is that there's plenty of hope there's plenty that we can do thank you so much scott